So today we're continuing uh, this series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks called Follow Me, Discipleship Through the Lens of Luke, and basically asking the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I mean, not just a fan of Jesus, not just somebody who kind of quotes Jesus as a source because of his wisdom and his wise sage, all these different things, but what it means to be a disciple of Jesus as Jesus would have defined what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in the book of Luke. And so we've been walking through this book. As you remember, at Christmas time, we looked at chapters one and two of Luke, you know, where we see the birth account of Jesus. We see him going to the temple to be dedicated before the Lord. And then in chapter three, we're introduced to sort of adult Jesus as he comes forward and he's baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, John's saying like, this is the guy. This is the guy that I've been talking about the whole time. This is the Messiah. And then in chapter four, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, uh, Jesus gets up as, as he does uh, on the Sabbath and he goes to the synagogue and he gets up and he reads uh, a passage of scripture. And he quotes Isaiah 61 saying these words in what's sometimes called his inaugural address of ministry. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. And at the time of the Lord's favor has come. He reads this familiar passage to them and at the end basically says, that passage that I just read, that prophecy, that's about me, Mike Drop. <laughs> and they basically try to kill him for it. Then we picked up in chapter five last week, uh, Joel talked about the fact that we're introduced to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter is invited to understand Jesus, not just as master who could teach us things and give us valuable skills, uh, but more importantly, as Lord of our lives. Jesus doesn't want to simply be master, but rather Lord. Uh, it made me think of, you know, Jesus doesn't want to be our sensei, using kind of the colloquial language of Cobra Kai. He, he wants us to learn skills, certainly. He wants to equip us for ministry and to be his hands and feet in this world, but ultimately he wants to be the king of our lives, not just the most valuable player in our lives. So then we get to chapter six. We haven't gotten there yet. This is new for us. Jesus is going around. He's continuing to heal. And he's continuing to teach. And he's you know, drawing his disciples to himself, the first 12. And he's got these huge crowds of people that are following him, maybe a little bit more like fans than followers. But huge crowds are following him. And he's preaching and he's teaching about things like the Sabbath. He's teaching about the Beatitudes, you know, the blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. He's teaching about the rich and the poor about loving your enemies, about the blind leading the blind, about taking the log out of your own eye before you try to help someone else's. Uh, these familiar stories, these familiar teachings that Jesus does. Teaches about not judging lest ye be judged. And chapter six ends with these words of Jesus that are familiar and that are kind of reminiscent of where we ended last week. He says this, so why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? You know, Jesus, you can almost picture him saying like, if you're sitting there listening to me and nodding and taking notes and going, mm, yeah, but you're not actually doing it, then I'm not Lord. Then I'm just another master. I'm just another advice giver for you. I'm just another sensei. And Jesus said, I don't even like Cobra Kai. That's what they were says in the original Greek. That's not very well known. And then we get to chapter seven. Uh, which is where we're going to kind of blast through today, frankly. And there's a shift, shifting from sort of this, these chapters of teaching to introducing us to these characters, these characters in which Jesus sort of embodies these principles that he's been teaching about. They illustrate what he's been teaching about to give us a glimpse of who Jesus is calling to be his disciples. There's four stories of four different people, a wealthy, powerful pagan, a poor, powerless pauper, 
a faltering saint and a beautiful meltdown. Let's read. I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, there are great resources. BibleGateway.com is a resource that I use on a multiple times a week basis. We've, we've talked a lot about the Bible app that you can get at Bible.com. It's a great resource. And in Lent, we are going to be doing a reading plan together as a church. Uh, so you can download that research uh, resource. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things to the people, he returned to Capernaum. And you remember, we've been kind of Capernaum this whole series so far around that area. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard Jesus or heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So let's pause there for just a second, because I've got some questions. I mean, chapter 6, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry, for they'll be fed. In fact, he's got really strong words. He says, woe to the rich. Woe to those who are well-fed, because you are going to be hungry. And then this very next chapter, the very first person he's ministering to is a wealthy, powerful pagan. I mean, he's a Gentile who literally works for the enemy, works for King Herod. It doesn't make sense. In fact, the text says that this guy is very wealthy. He's so wealthy, in fact, and so politically connected, in fact, that he's actually built a synagogue for the Jewish people. This guy's got lots and lots of money. And he says that Jesus was interacting with these Jewish elders. Aren't those exactly the kind of people that Jesus was so critical of? The established religion of the day? I think those are appropriate questions, but I think one of the common false narratives that we see so often about Jesus, one of the things that people who are fans but not followers of Jesus believe is that Jesus is anti-rich people or anti-establishment or anti-organizations or anti-institution, that Jesus only cares about the poor, the destitute, the orphans. And certainly Jesus does care. He has a very, you can't read any of the texts without seeing that Jesus has a very near and dear place in his heart for the poor and the marginalized. But not just them. Jesus also calls the powerful. It's a place to write that in your notes. Jesus also calls the powerful. He calls and uses people who are politically powerful, religiously powerful, economically powerful. And it's an incomplete picture of who Jesus is if we just look at his very important ministry to the poor. Let's keep reading, starting at verse 6. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I'm not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. So what can we take away from, from that, from that little interaction? Well, first of all, the centurion, this officer, calls Jesus Lord. And as we learned last week, there's, there's power in a title, but it's more than that. I think there's a humility in the centurion's response to Jesus. He says, I'm not worthy. But think about it. This was a man who was powerful, who oversaw hundreds of soldiers, who could demand respect and obedience, not only from his followers, from his, his soldiers, but from everyone in the town. This is a man who understood power, who understood influence, yet he humbles himself in response to Jesus. There's a place to write this in your notes. Jesus responds to a humble response to Jesus. Jesus responds to a humble response to Jesus. 
So in this interaction, you see there's humility, but I think it's more than that as well. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 8. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. Yes, it's about humility, but it's also about power, right? It's about authority. This powerful man understands power, understands authority. And more importantly, this this powerful man who understands authority believes that Jesus has that authority. In fact, authority over sickness itself. So much, in fact, that, that he has to simply speak a word and sickness has to obey. That's incredible faith. But I think it's also an incredible acknowledgement of the authority of Jesus over everything. It's interesting, so far in Luke, all these miracle accounts that we've seen, they've all happened in person, where Jesus is going and touching people. They're they're all happening in person, which is really, really cool. But here, the miracle is done remotely, which culturally would have indicated that this was a much more significant, magnificent, special kind of healing. There were other healers who went around doing kind of miraculous healings, but to do it remotely would have been absolutely unheard of. It's an amazing miracle. You expect this to be the spectacle, the the, the center of the story. This is the biggest thing yet. But that's not really where the story goes. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. This is one of only a handful of times in the New Testament where where we're told that Jesus was amazed. But what's he amazed at in this story? His miracle? The spectacle? No, he's amazed at the response of this man. It's the man's faith that amazes him. In fact, Jesus actually gives out very few commendations to people anywhere in the Gospels. He rarely says, look at this guy. And he chooses to do this. He says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. The miracle's not really the point of this story. It's sort of incidental. It's like, and then they went home and he was healed. <laughs> it kind of brushes over that, right? Jesus' power isn't even really the point of the story. The main point of the story is the response of this man. This rich, powerful pagan Gentile who's from a different culture, a different religion, a different ethnicity, who works for the enemy. And yet the story is included because of his faith, because of his response of humility and faith in Jesus. He brings his needs humbly before Jesus, trusting in Jesus' authority over sickness. And in response, Jesus says, this sort of faith is to be emulated. Yes, Jesus calls and invites even the rich and powerful to follow me. Let's go back to the story. That's not a complete picture yet of who Jesus is because Jesus also calls the powerless. Let's read, starting in verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went with his disciples to a village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. He still got the huge fan base that's following him around everywhere he goes. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. So in the previous story, we're looking at probably the most powerful man in town, right? And in this story, suddenly we're looking at probably the most powerless person in town. In that culture, to be a widow automatically puts you at the very bottom of society's value system, of power in that culture. 
The fact that she only had one child would alone have been probably a shaming thing for her. Like what's wrong with her that God has not blessed her with more children? But to then lose that one child, she would have no one to care for her, no one to support her. She's now without a future, now without hope. It doesn't get much more powerless than that. And we see Jesus meet her in the midst of that powerlessness. Let's keep reading. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it. And the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jewish custom at the time dictated that when a person died, their body needed to be buried within 24 hours, probably the same day, so that everyone involved could avoid being ceremonially unclean. No one was allowed to touch the body besides the direct family. And so this woman had probably lost her son that day, had spent the day washing his body, preparing his body for burial. And now in the, in the very depth of deep grief and mourning, she's walking to bury her only child, her only hope. And Jesus reaches across cultural and religious barriers to minister to her. Jesus approaches this funeral procession. And he actually touches the dead body. He touches the coffin, which would have been absolutely unacceptable. That wasn't allowed. Only family could touch the body of a dead person. Even they had to do it quickly. Do it that day in order to avoid being made unclean. This is what Jesus publicly was doing that in the eyes of the audience was culturally unacceptable, religiously forbidden, shocking. He was making himself unclean for a stranger. And yet Jesus doesn't hesitate. Jesus, with a word, brings the boy back to life. In fact, it's interesting that in this passage, in, in the Greek, Jesus uses the exact same phrase that, that the prophet Elijah had used when he, in a very similar story, back in 1 Kings, had given a boy back, brought a boy back to life and given him back to his mother. And I love that the story ends with that phrase, Jesus gave him back to his mother. Yes, Jesus gave her back her son, but he gave her so, so, so much more than that. He gave her back hope. She now had a future. And I think we, I need to pause there and, and just say, Jesus's actions prove his authority, but they also prove his heart. And we want to acknowledge that. Like Jesus has ultimate authority over sickness, over death itself. But his heart grieves when we grieve. He's moved by compassion. It says his heart overflowed with compassion, and that is the heart of God. In the previous story, Jesus had demonstrated his authority over sickness. Here he demonstrates his authority, his power, his lordship, even over death itself. But also his authority over ceremony and ritual and religion and who's clean and who's unclean. Some of the very same themes that he's preached about in chapter 6, he is now embodying in the real world. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of who's clean and who's unclean. I am the Lord of who is called, whether that's a powerful pagan or a penniless pauper. I am Lord. Which brings us to the next story. Let's read, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting 
or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? This is the same John who had said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the guy. This is the one that I was talking to you about. I said he would come. But now John's saying, are you the one? My daughter, Ellie, uh, who's nine, has picked up a fun new mannerism. Uh, when I say something really confidently, like, you know, I think this is going to work out really well, she'll go, eh, but is it? <laughs> I have no idea where she'd pick up such a skeptical and sarcastic demeanor. But I think that's a little bit, perhaps, of what John is doing here. And note that it asks the question twice in the story. John sends his disciples and he says, tell him, ask him, are you the one or should we keep looking? And then it includes it again in the story. So they went to him and said, are you the one or should we keep looking? I think the author includes this twice because he wants us to know something. And I think it's a gift to us. I think he wants us to know that at this point in this man's ministry, John, this amazing saint, is experiencing profound doubt. But the good news is, Jesus calls the doubter. Jesus calls the doubters. John is experiencing overwhelming, crippling, shake his foundation doubt. And it's understandable, John is in prison. John, who had very publicly prophesied that one would come who was going to be the king, who was going to separate the wheat from the chaff and burn all the chaff and sweep up the threshing floor. John had, had very publicly thumbed his nose at the religious leaders and at the political leaders, and he said, oh, just you wait. There's a guy coming. He's going to be the real king. And just, I, just you wait. He's going to tell what's what. <laughs> and now John is looking at everything Jesus is doing, and it doesn't line up. This is not the Messiah he expected. This is not at all the, the, the bigger, badder, tougher, wheat-threshing, chaff-burning Messiah that he had talked about. It's like John is saying, Jesus, you're supposed to be overthrowing the Romans, and yet the stories I'm hearing, you're like healing their slaves and commending their faith. What are you doing? This isn't Messiah stuff. There's something I think we can learn from that as well. Jesus upends our expectations. Jesus is also the Lord of our expectations. Joel talked about this last week. When we, when we try to get Jesus to do what we think he should, we relegate Jesus to master. But Jesus wants to be the Lord of our plans, the Lord of our expectations, the Lord of that contract that we sign that we just leave blank and say, God, whatever, whatever you want, that's what I'm up for. So how does John respond? With doubt? Yes. Imperfectly? Yes, in perfect faith, absolutely. But does he bag it? Does he quit? Does he give up? No, I think what we see in the story is that Jesus, or that John brings his doubts before Jesus. He says, I believe, I want to believe. Are you that one? Because right now, none of this is making a whole lot of sense for me. Jesus will also be the Lord of our doubts. If we'll allow him to be. If we'll honestly bring those doubts before him, bring even our imperfect faith to him. You see, faith isn't the absence of doubt. That's such a good line. And when I came up with this week, I was really impressed with myself. And I shared it with someone and they said, yeah, that's not yours. <laughs> that's been said before. So I Googled it and it turns out the full quote is this. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It's continuing to follow Jesus in the midst of doubt. That is so much better than how I said it. <laughs> It's not the absence of doubt. John absolutely has doubt. We see it. The author makes it very clear. He's going, are you the one? Are you the one? 
but he leans into and he continues to follow in the midst of the doubt. And Jesus doesn't chastise John. I think we have to note that. He doesn't say like, man, if you can't even believe, what's the point? I can't believe you're, there's none of that. Instead, he says, go tell John, he tells the disciples, go tell John what you've seen me doing. Tell him the miracles you've seen me perform. And he goes on, and he lists all the things that he said he was gonna do in that inaugural address. The blind are seeing, the, the, the dead are rising, the, the, the prisoners are being released. These are all things that John, as a prophet, would have known only marked the coming of the one, of the Messiah. He confirms for John that which he was asking. Jesus responds even to John's imperfect faith. In fact, for the second time in the chapter, Jesus does what he so infrequently does throughout the gospel. He commends John. In verse 28, it says, I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. It's a place to write this in your notes. Jesus responds to an imperfect response to Jesus. There's so much hope in that for me because so infrequently are my responses to Jesus perfect. I don't know about you, uh, but I rarely get it right. There's a lyric in a song that we've been singing a lot in this last year, a song called The Father's House. And the lyrics are this, you never wanted perfect, you just wanted my heart. And the story isn't over if the story isn't good because failure's never final when the Father's in the room. And I love that. A willingness to simply bring even our imperfect faith before God. And that in this case, Jesus commends John for doing it. Which brings us to our last story. Jesus calls the marginalized. There's one last story that I think illustrates who Jesus is. And he was calling his disciples on this journey to the cross. And I call it the beautiful let down. Let's read, starting in verse 38. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his house and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfumes. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. This woman's just full-on mess. (laughs) This this is a full-on beautiful meltdown, right? I mean, she's in this space, this home of this Pharisee, this this godly, godly man. She knows that she's a sinner, and she knows that everybody in the room knows she's a sinner. She knows that everybody in the town knows she's a sinner. She's been pushed to the absolute margin of respectable society. And she's there anyway, bringing all of herself before these religious people, but also before Jesus. Even the messy, broken, ugly cry, the beautiful meltdown she brings before Jesus. It's beautiful because she's bearing all of her heart, all of herself, even the broken parts, to the one whom she trusts will forgive. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. That's a neat trick. (laughs) Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And Jesus goes on to tell the story of a certain uh, certain banker who who lent out money to these two men. To one, he loaned out about two months worth of salary. So that's significant. I mean, that's a lot of money, right? Two months worth of salary. But to the other, he loaned out about two years worth of salary. So that's far, far, far more money, right? And when the time came for both to pay him back, neither of them could. 
Neither could pay back the debt, any of it. But unlike the movies, where the loan shark now has those guys whacked. <laughs> In Jesus' story, the loan shark, the lender, simply erases the debt, cancels the debt. I mean, imagine, two years worth of salary, just gone, just erased, just forgiven. And then Jesus asked Simon, which debtor do you think was more grateful? Which debtor do you think loved that lender more? And Simon said, well, the one for whom more was forgiven, I would assume. And Jesus said, you're right. And then he goes on, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she's shown me much love, but a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. And he said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. I think Jesus is saying to this Pharisee and to everybody else in the room and to this woman, I have authority even over sin, even over judgment. I have forgiven her debts, her sin, and there's a lot of sin to forgive. But that's the kind of authority I have. I can forgive that, and she's grateful. Well, this is a familiar story, and I think oftentimes we hear it, and there's a tendency to want to move on maybe too quickly. Because there were two debtors in that story, right? I think the invitation of Jesus is just as much to this Pharisee. To say, follow me. I think we tend to read the story and reflect on Jesus and on the grace and on the, the enormous amount that's forgiven. But Jesus places two debtors in the story. He makes the invitation to two debtors. The story is just as much about him. I think the invitation to this Pharisee, though, I mean, from all indications, fell on deaf ears. Maybe he's reluctant to actually believe that Jesus has that kind of authority. Or maybe he's reluctant to risk having his own beautiful meltdown, of having to face the yuck that he would have certainly known was in his own life. He didn't want to recognize that while perhaps his debt wasn't as great, it was still greater than he would ever be able to pay. And yet in this story, Jesus says that debt could be forgiven if he would simply turn if you would simply repent. It's a place to write this down. Jesus responds to a repentant response to Jesus. Repentance isn't a word that's used much anymore. I think we've become afraid of it in some ways. Uh, it's kind of a big theological word that's loaded. And I think there's a lot of associations with guilt and self-loathing and all these different things. But biblically and in this story, the concept of repentance is simply recognizing that the path you're on isn't the right path. It's this idea of literally turning and saying, yes, I will follow you, Jesus. I will go off this path that I've been on. And for this woman, that path was 180 degrees. It was a big turn to acknowledge the direction she was going and make that turn. For John, maybe it was a lesser. I mean, he simply was starting to veer off into doubt. And for him, repentance simply turns, means yes, I'm gonna focus my eyes, focus my attention on who you've said you are, who you've proven yourself to be. Repentance is simply acknowledging that we're going the wrong way, maybe in big ways and maybe in less ways, and responding by turning back towards God, of saying yes to this invitation to journey with Jesus to the way of the cross, acknowledging that, that all of us, to different degrees perhaps, are sinners, that all of us are, are in need of that debt, forgiveness, a debt that we couldn't possibly pay. That Pharisee was given the same invitation as the woman. He simply chose a different response we have been given that same invitation to evaluate our own lives, 
to be willing to, to bring our, humbly bring before God our fears, our concerns, our cares, but also our brokenness, our sin, our doubts, our failures. Say, God, make me whole again. Align me to you. Bind my wandering heart to you. I think as we've seen these four stories, perhaps, I know for me, I can see myself in some of them. Perhaps you've seen yourself in some of them, the powerful, the powerless, the, the faltering saint, or even the beautiful meltdown. Or maybe it's the Pharisee or the fan club that follows around Jesus trying to get as much from they can from the sensei. It didn't actually do what he told them. I'm guessing all of us can find ourselves somewhere in this story. Jesus' invitation is, is to all of them. That's the theme that runs through all of these stories. Follow me. An invitation is stop going our own way and instead follow Jesus. To humbly bring all of ourselves, even our doubt, even our sin, before Jesus and ask him to make us whole. To acknowledge that he's Lord over sickness and death, and doubt, and sin, and religion, and whatever it is that's keeping us separated from God. We're in the season, we're about to start the season of Lent, and, and we suggested that rather than trying to hit the ground running, we would take this opportunity to kind of ramp up to Lent. And I would invite you, as Joel did last week, to use this time to go before God and say, where am I holding back? Where am I not doing that last 10% of the turn? Why need to just fix my eyes on you and just say yes and follow you in everything in my life? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your word and for these stories. Um, these stories of you demonstrating your heart demonstrating your desire that all would know you, demonstrating your willingness to use all of us, whether we are in positions of power, uh, positions where we have wealth, or positions where we have nothing. You can use all of that to bring glory to yourself. You can use all of that to bring more people to yourself, to demonstrate your power and your character and your love. God, we thank you that you've given us this example. I mean, the hero in this story is a Roman pagan. <laughs> and, and if there's a bad guy, it's John. You know, he's at his lowest point. And he include all of it. We thank you for the grace that is in that. That even this pillar, John, struggled and doubted. And you commended him. God, we thank you for this woman. We don't know, we don't know why the town hated her. We don't know what her sin was. We know very little about her. And you chose to highlight her. You chose to demonstrate your power and your character through this woman. And so now generations and generations later, we can celebrate the grace that she experienced. God, we thank you for that. May we experience that kind of grace in our lives. Make us into your people. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>